I am joined by Jacob Shapiro, partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, as well as the geopolitics editor of Lycan. Jacob, great to have you back. It's good to be back with you, Jack. It's been a minute. It has. Jacob, you are an expert in all things geopolitics. So, you know, I and perhaps some people in the audience are similar to me where they focus on finance a fair amount. And, you know, I don't I don't follow geopolitics as much as I should. So we really are glad that you're here, Jacob, to, to catch us up. So I, I guess the two big stories are, of course, uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that war, as well as brewing tensions with China. Let's start with the with the first topic. Uh, how is the war uh faring uh, in in Ukraine, which side is, quote, winning? Uh, what does winning even mean? And then we'll get into the economic and, uh, and, and consequences of which there are many. Sure. So and you said I'm, I'm a geopolitics expert. And I, I think I've said this on, on your podcast before. I'm, I'm almost tortured about that because what I really am is a deep generalist. Like I sort of go where the information tells me to go. And I think I use geopolitics as a way to understand the relationships between nations and to engage with these these macro trends. Um, I, I saw a funny tweet out from somebody that said, like Ian Bremmer was apparently doing a 10 minute interview on NPR about China. And the tweet was like, Lord, give me the confidence to have as much confidence as Ian Bremmer does pretending to be a China expert on NPR. <laughs> so I say that to say I, I come with a fair degree of humility and with, you know, I'm the guy who got the Russia-Ukraine war wrong last year. I had some better calls sort of in the second half of the year. But geopolitics, just remember, it's a way of understanding the relationships between nations. And even if you say you're not a geopolitics expert, you're probably dealing with geopolitics even when you don't know it. Um, you raised some very good questions about the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, and I'll try and supply some, some much-needed nuance um, in, in the current discussion of it. I think... On the one hand, people seem to have forgotten that the war is, is going on. I keep on hearing that people think a truce is coming or that we're going to get a frozen conflict. That's definitely possible. You probably saw that at the end of the year, Vladimir Putin came out and said it was okay for Russia to accept foreign currency uh, from unfriendly nations for natural gas again. That shows you, a, I think that's a pretty big deal and gets to some of the things I've talked about here before that Russia really didn't have a lot of leverage um, when it came to Europe. But today on the battlefield, like Ukraine's winning. Um, the longer, like, like Ukraine has definitely pushed Russia back from some of their strategic positions, and it has Russia on its heels. Now, the problem is that we're entering a season where it's really hard to have war in eastern Ukraine. The ground is either frozen or, in a worst-case scenario, very muddy. So it's harder to move troops from point A to point B. It's harder to move armored personnel carriers and tanks and all these other things. So I think what you're seeing right now, I mean, Russia is bombing Kiev and other Ukrainian city, cities just to remind the Ukrainians that they're still there. The Ukrainians are using drone attacks and to the extent they can also trying to attack Russian targets. But I think you have two sides that are basically marshalling and building their forces for a renewed offensive in the spring. Um, that I think is the most likely scenario. I would not sit here and tell you that I have a high degree of confidence in that. If you told me that there was some kind of truce um, that came about in the spring with all this posturing, I could believe that. Um, but I, I think that the, I think folks are underestimating the fact that I think once we get to spring, I see two sides that are preparing for the next stage of this conflict, not sides that are, are anywhere close um, to declaring peace for the simple fact that Russia has not achieved any of its objectives and Ukraine has not achieved any of its stated objectives. And Jacob, when you say Ukraine is winning, would you say they're 
winning on an absolute basis or are they winning on the relative basis with that relative basis being that uh, they are dwarfed in size and population by Russia. They're not a part of NATO. Their borders are somewhat porous but with Russia and the Russia-friendly Belarus. So they started the war with a lot of disadvantages. Are you saying that is there is are the fact that they're winning, are they winning absolute or relative to those starting disadvantages I just enumerated? I think they're winning in an absolute sense, but the big problem in their Achilles heel is that they do not produce the weapons that they need to fight Russia. They get those weapons mostly from the United States and also to a limited extent from the Europeans. And some of those weapons supply chains and defense supply chains have been really interesting. For instance, I, I was reading just the other day that, for instance, Germany wants to send more ammunition uh, to Ukraine, but some technical part of ammunition comes from China and that supply chain is broken down. So even if the Germans want to send ammunition to Ukraine, they can't get the part they need from China to sort of like all those supply chain issues are, are sort of at issue for Ukraine. So I think this is one of the reasons that Ukraine has to continue to demonstrate that it has an advantage, that it can keep pushing forward if it has support. Because if the United States and Europe said, we're going to stop exporting weapons or providing weapons to the Ukrainians tomorrow, uh, this conflict would turn around in a real hurry. And I think that is still what Russia is banking on. Um, Russia's military, like going back hundreds of years, has never been particularly good or skilled. Um, I think we all kind of forgot that at a certain point. Uh, the one thing that Russia has always had is stamina. They will outlast you and they will outsuffer you and they will take more punishment than you think that regime can take until they actually grind out a victory. And that's still at play for Russia. I think they are still thinking that their leverage over Europe their stamina in this conflict means that they will eventually turn the tide. And even though their weapons are inferior to what the West is providing Ukraine, if they can get the West to turn their back on Ukraine or, or pressure Ukraine into some kind of concession, then maybe the, the sort of leverage is back in their position. Uh, but then that goes to, you know, how long does Putin have in Russia? How long are the people going to put up with it? How long is the oligarchy behind Putin going to put up with it? Those are all unanswerable questions. That's why there's so much uncertainty around Russia, Ukraine right now. If, if you if you have anyone on this podcast or if you see anyone talking that says they're certain what's going to happen here in the next couple months, they're full of crap. Like there's so much uncertainty around this right now. Yeah. And uh, to what degree is the Russian economy and the Ukrainian economy now fully centered around war? Is it war economy similar to what, you know, most of America and the U.S. was during World War II, where you know, you're, you're baking bread for the soldiers. You're making tanks. You're not making cars for consumers. You're making tanks uh, uh, for, for, for the military. Um, and yeah, I, I guess about, about, about Ukraine, but I also want to know about Russia, where I believe they started, uh, the Kremlin started conscript, conscripting young men, right? Uh, basically forcing them into military service. Yeah, I mean, Russia is largely a commodities-based economy. So to the extent they have global economic importance, it's not because of their burgeoning tech sector or anything like that. They export some commodities that everybody else needs. And the problem with all this is that uh, natural gas, which was one of their big sort of money makers, um, they thought that that, that that natural gas leverage over Europe was going to save them and that Europe was going to come to the negotiating table and force Ukraine to the, the negotiating table. Instead, we have like an unprecedented heat wave in Europe happening right now so that they don't need natural gas to heat their homes. I was talking to a Danish friend earlier this morning. He was telling me he was walking around outside on New Year's Eve without a coat on, like in Denmark. Um, so, you know, uh, Putin really kind of missed the, I guess he couldn't have known. If you had looked at the trend of European weather over 20, 30 years, you would have known that a colder than expected winter was not on the cards. But like Russia's really hurting from that from that point of view. To the extent that it's a war economy, 
I mean, yeah, I guess so. But the problem with the Russian economy is that they've never been able to make things particularly well. And they're scrambling around trying to reorient some of their supply chains to China or to anywhere else. Um, Ukraine, yes, I think the economy really is geared towards um, a war footing. The, the open question with Ukraine that I spend most of my time thinking about right now is what happens for this next planting season in Ukraine? So the Ukrainian, Ukrainian farmers who provide, I think what, it's the number two wheat exporter, number four corn, I, I forget the exact numbers, but you know, major wheat exporter, major corn exporter, major sunflower exporter, a lot of different um, agricultural commodities. They had enough fertilizer on hand because they get most of their fertilizer from Russia to have a fairly normal planting season. And once there was that sort of Turkey, um, Turkish negotiated truce that allowed, you know, Ukrainian agricultural exports out of the Black Sea, like some of that Ukrainian corn and wheat and sunflower started getting to market and they had fertilizer on hand to grow it. Um, I've heard conflicting things about what that looks like now in the next growing season. I've heard that maybe the Ukrainians have no fertilizer at all and have no prospect of acquiring any. Now, Ukraine's very fertile. Maybe they could still produce things. But what if that grain deal falls apart? Putin was questioning it just a month or two ago. Um, everybody looked at him and said, well, what are you going to do? And he had to retrace his steps. Um, so from that perspective, it'll be very interesting to see if Ukraine's farmers can get like something back to normalcy. Because if they can, these soybean prices and corn prices and wheat prices that we're seeing in global markets probably can't hold. But if they really don't have any fertilizer and they can't get their crop out of the Black Sea and Russia has its own problems, you know, maybe there's another leg up for some of those commodities, which was kind of one of the big trades, I think, to, to think about last year. So, um, yeah. Yeah, your, I remember the first interview we did, the price of wheat had gone up, but it had not yet skyrocketed. And you said that was something to watch. And you, you were actually uh, right about that. And of course, as you said, all these crops uh, need fertilizer and a key input to fertilizer is uh, urea, uh, to which a key input is natural gas, which is where all this goes. So uh, Russia, a key supplier producer of the world's natural gas, as well as oil, Oil, you know, it's smelly, it's stuff, but you can transport it relatively easily around the world, relatively cheaply. Natural gas is very complicated. You need these liquefaction, these regasification plants, which Europe was was sorely behind on. Uh, as you said about a year ago, or maybe 10 months ago, a great fear was Europe would uh, uh, freeze for the entire winter. And I, I did many interviews on this. Um, that uh, Europe was able to manage to buy a ton of natural gas uh, from the United States as well as Qatar via liquefied natural gas, and they also were helped by um, you know Mother Nature with the the weather being unseasonably warmed as as you mentioned. The last interview we did, I think it was early summer of 2022. I know that then the gas was still flowing uh, through. Through, through through Nord Stream, one of the Nord Streams. But then it, it was shut off be, uh, because of a, quote, accident. Uh, how sure are we that that accident was kind of just the, the Russians uh, sabotaging the pipeline or, or perhaps someone else sabotaging the pipeline? And to, um, is it true that now no natural gas or essentially no natural gas from Russia flows into Europe? Well, let's take the easy part of the question. Most natural gas is not flowing towards Europe right now from Russia. Um, and the thing is that Europe doesn't really need it between the LNG capacity they've been able to bring online, between imports from other places, between their willingness to pay a higher premium so that countries like Pakistan uh, get screwed out of the cargoes they thought they get. Like Europe has has been fine. And as wrong as I was about the Russia-Ukraine war in the beginning, I feel very good about being right about this quote unquote European energy crisis. Um, that was sort of never really in the cards um, from that point of view. There was a price crisis the price quant crisis allowed there to to get around the quantity crisis. The ultimate crisis is there is no natural gas. We do not have that crisis. Europe did, did never had that crisis. 
but it did so because it paid an arm and a leg for natural gas. It's trying to propose windfall taxes on all these natural gas companies all around the world. It's uh, taking oil from, from uh, natural gas from Pakistan, which which I didn't know about until you, until you said. Um, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the uh, utilities are having to subsidize price caps. There there are, there is a uh, crisis like features, but I guess it could it could have gotten a lot worse. Just to close the loop on that thing, I mean. Yes. And I always said that there were going to be sectors and different countries in Europe that were going to be more exposed. So if you're making industrial glass in the Czech Republic, it still looks pretty dicey. I still wouldn't feel super comfortable about that. But if you're in Spain and you're not that dependent on Russia for natural gas, like suddenly for the first time in the European Union's history, maybe you have an advantage on Germany because Germany met the whole farm on getting cheap natural gas from Russia. That failed. Whereas, um, Spain is one of the top uh, LNG importers and has some of the has has the I think the most LNG import capacity in the entire block. So it really kind of depends regionally. And anybody who was saying that the Europeans were going to be freezing in the streets, like that was a, a ridiculous take. Now, to your your first question is harder, which is what happened with the Nord Stream pipelines, who blew them up, and why. And I would just be speculating. I think this is one of those things that those who know don't talk, and those who talk don't know. Um, I don't know. I've I've asked a bunch of different people, both analysts and officials in, in different countries, and nobody's willing to give me a straight answer. So maybe that tells you something right there. Uh, but unfortunately, I have I have no insight there. All we can say is that the gas is not flowing, or at least a lot of gas is not flowing from Russia to Europe anymore. I think it's um, at least one of the pipelines is still technically operational. And I think you can see Russia's trying to see maybe they want to export gas again to Europe. Um, so it's not like everything is completely crippled, um, but Russia's capacity to export um, to Europe is definitely lower than it was before the explosions in those pipelines. Right. And so to the extent that Russia is no longer sending uh, natural gas to Europe, where has it gone? Uh, is China buying it? Is India buying it? I know China and India are buying a lot of Russian oil. Um, yeah. So uh, what about that? Yeah, I mean, my joke since the big since the week after this conflict was that Vladimir Putin turned Russia from a great power into a Chinese gas station, and there are limits to what there are limits to how much gas Russia can transport to China. I think there's I forget how many if it's one pipeline or two pipelines, and even then it's to particular parts of the Chinese market. Some of these bigger, more ambitious pipelines are not online yet, but as much as they can, they're trying to send natural gas to China to the limited extent they have LNG capacity in Russia. They've been trying to send it to China. There was actually this interesting moment um, last, I think it was last fall, when the Chinese were accepting the natural gas from Russia and then LNG imports that China was getting from places like Australia. It was selling for a profit on the spot market because it didn't actually need them. It was sort of turning around and sending that LNG to Europe. Mm -hmm. People say that China and Russia are buddies, like when China's just like making a quick yuan or buck or ruble or whatever you want to put in there off of like Russia's geopolitical situation. I think that tells you kind of where China's at. Um, so yes, like it's it's places like China and places like India, but you already hit the nail on the head. It's very difficult for, for Russia to just say, hey, we're going to move the natural gas from Europe to China. They can do some of it, but it's nowhere near the scale and they don't have the infrastructure necessary and won't for years if they can even build it um, to have the kind of captive customer that they had in Europe before. So um, I, I got into a Twitter debate with somebody yesterday who said I was guilty of calling Vladimir Putin a moron. Um, for all this. And I don't think he's a moron. I think Vladimir Putin is incredibly smart. He's probably smarter than I am, but he made a big mistake here. And Russia's geopolitics have always been so insecure that when Russia makes a mistake, the regime is threatened when we're in the United States. In the United States, when we make a mistake, like, you know, the second Iraq war, 
we all kind of shrug and move along and go about our business. It doesn't work that way for Russia. So um, Putin's made a big mistake and he's paying for it right now. Mm. And what about the... Um European price cap on oil. I, I don't really even know what a price cap is or, or how it, it works. And I think it's at $65 a barrel. Uh, President of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, wanted it to be lower. It's not. It's $65 a barrel. And that was initiated, I think, in early December, uh, made official in late December. But I think Poland is kind of wishy-washy on whether they want to actually enforce that. So yeah, tell us about the significance of that oil cap. I think that was, I mean, there's some market significance to it, but it was more, it was of more significance as a symbol of European cohesion relative to Russia and about all of the European countries getting on the same page about sanctions against Russia. Um, Hungary was the one country that was holding out. They didn't want the price cap and they were trying to gum things up. And they eventually were so isolated that they had to do an about face and sign on to them. So I think it was important in the sense that it told you what Europe's priorities were and it told you that Europe was going to decrease um, imports of Russian oil as quickly as they could. There's also, and I mean, this is where the China uncertainty gets into here. Like it's, I think one of the reasons oil prices have sort of fluttered around the 70 to 80 levels because nobody knows how to read the China reopening story. Does that mean Chinese demand is going to surge? Does that mean, you know, millions of Chinese people are going to die from COVID? And so demand is going to fall off a cliff for a couple of months and there's sort of everything in between. Um, so I think that the the price cap certainly affected European imports of Russian oil. It was important as a sign of European cohesion. I'm sure it also re, reoriented some things in global markets. But when I look at oil prices right now, the market force, it's, it's much more about China and the U.S. recession, whether it's coming or not, than it is about the price cap itself. Mm -hmm. And um, so the China reopening, very important to d uh, demand, as is U.S. demand, uh, the recession you, you mentioned uh, but what about those Russian barrels? Because when it first war first started, it said, okay, those barrels will be taken off the market. Now they're not going into Europe, but they're just going into China. So it's a, it's a global fungible market. So uh, yeah, to, to what degree is, you know, the amount of oil that Russia is putting out into the global market actually down? Or is it uh, the same as it was before the war? It's down a little bit. And this is because, I mean, some of the oil that Russia produced was in partnership with U.S. and other you know, global energy companies, and they've all left. And Russia doesn't have a lot of the tech know-how and expertise uh, to operate some of these things. But again, there was also a doom and gloom narrative out, out there that you know Russia wasn't going to be able to operate these things at all and wasn't going to be able to export oil at all. So I don't think Russia can surge production or increase production very much mm -hmm. from where it is right now. Uh, I think you could see a slow sort of trickle of decline in Russian production. It's also important at this point to watch the Saudis. I mean, I, I say this um, a lot, but the biggest geopolitical story in the world the week before COVID hit was the Russia oil Saudi price war. The Saudi Arabians wanted to muscle Russia out of the market, and they decided to undercut them on, on prices of sales to different countries in Asia. Um, just because they wanted to steal market share from Russia. And Saudi Arabia was at the time willing to swallow 20 to $25 barrel of oil a year um, in order to deal a blow to Russia in that sort of scenario. All the market, like once we get back to normal, whatever that means, normal market dynamics post COVID, like post all these other things, like that's still where we are. We're still in a market where there's more oil than there is demand, especially as we start moving towards a clean, cleaner energy transition in some of these developed markets. So um, I think you're absolutely right. Oil is fungible in a way that natural gas is not, and barrels are probably going to go from one place to another. We haven't even talked about, you know, Iran or Libya or some of these other places where, um, 
you get more capacity online. Guyana is another place that's been producing oil like gangbusters just in the last year or two for export. So I think there's a lot of oil out there. And that's why the question really is whether there's enough demand and what that demand is going to look like going forward. America and many, the most European countries are very unfriendly with Russia uh, right now, uh, directly or indirectly providing support to Ukraine, a few exceptions like Belarus. Uh, who are Russia's friends at this moment? What, what are the relationships like with Iran, India, China, Saudi Arabia? Um, well, Belarus is for all intents and purposes part of Russia. Um, I mean, Russia's really on its heels here. The closest friend it probably has right now is China. Uh, but if you believe the reporting out of China just this last week, the Chinese have basically been trying to rehabilitate, them, rehabilitate themselves diplomatically a little bit. They're taking a much softer line to the start of the year. Uh, and there have been Chinese officials, you know, telling the FT and anybody else who will quote them, Putin didn't tell us about this. Putin is crazy. China doesn't need to align itself with Russia. So that's not an ironclad friendship or alliance by any means. The same is true of Iran. Like Russia and Iran have been partners of convenience now for over a decade, maybe more. But traditionally speaking, Russia and Iran are competitors. They compete in Central Asia. They, comp they compete in the Caucasus. Um, it, it's not sort of a perfect sort of one-to-one -one relationship. Uh, India, one of the most stark things that happened for me in the last couple of months was Modi started lecturing Putin about how war was really bad in a meeting a couple of months ago. So India... Uh, will take all the cheap uh, commodities that Russia will export to it. You know, they'll, they'll take them off their hands and be very happy to do so. But India apparently feels so confident in itself vis-a-vis -vis Russia that it'll take those cheap imports and then also criticize Russia to its face. Um, even in places like Central Asia, like Russia is not the power that it once was. Chinese influence is growing there. Kazakhstan's been pushing against Russia as well. So I think when it comes to this war, Russia really doesn't have a lot of friends in that regard. Now, the, the flip side of that is that countries like China, even like Brazil, Turkey, India, they want to move towards this multipolar world that you and I have talked more about, where the United States is not all calling the shot, uh, where the United States is not calling all of the shots. And a Russian state collapse or a very, very weak Russia is bad for all those countries because it takes sort of a U.S. rival off the board and it makes the U.S. that much more powerful or you know, it takes a problem off the board that the United States doesn't have to worry about. So I think to the extent that China and some of these other countries want to support Russia, it's that they don't want to see Russia collapse. They want to see Russia as you know, part of that multipolar world, one that they can deal with and import cheap commodities from and get their fertilizer from and things like that, and also one that soaks up U.S. bandwidth and attention. So... They, they're willing to take advantage of Russia. They don't want to be seen as supporting Russia overly. They also don't want Russia to collapse. It's sort of a different, it's a, it's a difficult needle to thread. And it's, it really depends, you know, then it comes back to what's going on with the war in Ukraine. How is Russia doing? Like how many atrocities are being reported in the media every day about what's going on on the ground? Like all that starts to play into the media narrative. You said earlier that anyone who claims that they know for a fact how this war is going to end uh, is, is lying or that they don't know. I agree with you, but can we just uh, paint paint us a, a picture of the various ways which this could end? What does Russia winning look like? What does Ukraine winning look look like? For example, you know, is it possible that uh, Putin can can keep his position and the the uh, uh, Ukraine keeps its sovereignty and that the war is over? Is it possible that could happen soon? Does that require, you know, years of stalemate? What what does door number one, door number two, door number three, door number four look like? And which do you think is more likely? That's a great question. I mean, 
So Ukrainian victory, I think, would be pushing Russia back to the 2014 borders, retaking Crimea, retaking Donetsk and Luhansk, and then, you know, the borders go back to where they were in 2014. Um, I, I think Russian victory, uh, I, I mean, I guess they could try and just like um, establish control over Donetsk and Luhansk and try and go home from there. I don't know that the Ukrainians would accept that. And I don't know if that's enough of a victory for Russia. Russia also, like it's still in the cards that Russia can push and try and conquer this country. Like I said, Ukraine has incredible defenders and incredible fighters, but a lot of their ability to defend themselves is based on weapons imports from the West. So if the Ukrainians run out of weapons, you know, this conflict could change in sort of a big way. Um, It can also become a frozen conflict. Um, you know, in 2014, like the reason there are Russian forces in Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk is because they pushed a little bit and then they couldn't push any further. And there was just sort of a, a mini frozen and frozen conflict doesn't mean that people weren't fighting. Like there were artillery shells being fired all the time and people dying, you know, every other week um, on the border. It just wasn't, neither side was pushing big offensives against each other and the death tolls were relatively low. So you could have a frozen conflict too. I wouldn't dismiss the tail risk of Russia using nuclear weapons if Ukraine really does push to the borders. I mean, Russia has technically annexed some of these territories, so they think it's part of Russia now. And Russia has always said that it would use nuclear weapons if it was if it was about defending the Russian homeland. So if Ukraine starts taking back territories that Russia annexed and Russia's on its heels, can you imagine the tail risk of a Russian nuclear conflict? I can't dismiss it, but, you know, put it at 3% or something like that, but that's 3% for like a really catastrophic thing. Yes. I think that the most likely scenario Um, And again, this is not with a high confidence interval, but if you put a gun to my head and said, what's the most likely scenario? I don't see the United States and Europe um, reducing their support for Ukraine. If anything, I see signs that they're increasing it, that they have a sense that Russia's really weak and that they smell blood in the water. So I think that Ukraine with Western support is going to keep pushing here. And I think that getting back to those 2014 borders is absolutely realistic and the question then becomes does russia use nuclear weapons because he feels threatened can putin survive that i think he can like if if he hasn't been overthrown already like it's not clear to me that you know retreating a little bit is actually going to change that much maybe he gets overthrown as well but i think the most likely scenario is um conflict resumes in the spring the ukrainians keep pushing but they keep pushing Russia back until you get to a line where the Europeans and Americans feel like they can tell the Ukrainians, hey, you've had enough, stop, like don't go any further than this. And then there's some kind of negotiation. So that, that's my most probable, but low confidence interval for sure. Mm-hmm. And how do you estimate the resolve of Ukraine's allies who are helping Ukraine a lot? So that would be uh, European allies who are helping Ukraine as well as the U.S. And I think for the U.S., you know, America produces way more weapons than it ever could use. So it's, it's you know, we're on a different continent. It's, it's not the biggest sacrifice for America. Uh, however, in, in Europe, you know, there are people who are paying four, five, ten times as much for electricity, or they would be paying if it weren't for government support, in which case, you know, the, the governments are, are losing money. Um, if, if, you know, it weren't for the... the um, uh, lack of, lack of natural gas. I feel like the uh, yeah. You know, h- how uh, how is the general outlook both among the general populations of Europe as well as the specific politicians uh, to continue their support? I think the spirit is willing. The question is whether the flesh is going to be weak or not. So let's just talk about it from the United States perspective. Um, there were some Republicans in the midterms who were running on this kind of, oh, like we shouldn't be giving so much money to the Ukrainians. This is bad. Most of them lost or, or were embarrassed. Anecdotally, I'm from rural Georgia. I was back home for the holidays. 
And one of the only issues that I find that people in rural Georgia agree with people here in the streets of New Orleans about is Ukraine. I see Ukrainian flags flying in the French Quarter in New Orleans. I see Ukrainian flags flying next to Trump flags in rural Georgia. I think everybody sort of has this feeling about Ukraine in the United States, at least anecdotally from the communities that I've been in, that no, like we should support the Ukrainians, like this is really bad, like et cetera. Uh, my sense is also that Europe doesn't trust Russia anymore, that even Germany feels betrayed by what Russia did and that they will never allow themselves to be put in that situation again. I think that the Europeans also understand they can't depend on the United States even for their national security anymore. Uh, and they need to rev up their military industrial complex. I think you'll see a lot of investments in European defense here over the next couple of years as they try to stand up their own force. The question is whether Europe and the United States can provide the weapons that Ukraine needs. Because yes, you're right that the United States makes a lot of weapons, but Ukraine's been exhausting even our like caches of weapons and things really? like that. And there have been reports that if you were really going to give the Ukrainians everything they asked for, and of course, you know, the Ukrainians want everything, they want to fire everything and go, you know, 110%. But you know, you asked about is Ukraine's economy in a war footing, the US economy, it wouldn't have to be in a war footing, but at least the military industrial complex would have to start producing weapons as if an army was in an active conflict. We're not doing that right now. We had a lot of weapons that, you know, we sort of took out of storage that we didn't use before. But if the Ukrainians are going to keep firing artillery and using ammunition at the rate that they have been over the past couple of months, like we're going to have to increase production a little bit. Like it's not just going to be like we flip a switch and we kind of go from there. And that's where those supply chains also start to matter because like, you know, when you get to ammunition, like China's involved in that supply chain, other parts of the country, uh, other countries in the world are parts of that supply chain. So I think the spirit in the West is willing the question is, how much does Ukraine need and does it ever get to the point where it outstrips the West's ability to produce? Um, it's not there yet, um, but you know that, that, that's another thing to kind of watch going forward. That could be another thing that Russia's banking on. Maybe it thinks that the West will get to the point where it can't produce enough for Ukraine and this is as far as Ukraine can go. That's certainly a believable scenario. All right, so your, your base case is that the, the war continues, correct me if I'm wrong, and then if so, what are the consequences of that? My base case is that the war continues that it continues to go well for Ukraine uh, and that it doesn't go well for Russia. Um, and I think that ironically, that means um, for me, I think mostly about agricultural commodities from that point of view. I think that Ukraine is able to continue exporting agricultural commodities, but won't have access to fertilizer and things like that. So that'll be a problem. I think you'll get um, continued political tension over importing Russian energy, importing Russian agricultural commodities, that sort of thing. And then again, like I think for Europe, like Europe has a lot of short-term pain coming just because they've survived this far in the energy crisis. Like that doesn't mean that the energy crisis is just gone. It's going to take them a year or two at least to get enough LNG and enough of these alternatives online to where they're not paying, you know, ridiculously high prices relative to the rest of the world for natural gas. But I think that what you'll see there is it's going to drive more European cohesion, European investment in energy infrastructure and in defense infrastructure, all of those sorts of things. And um, when there's this much uncertainty, I, I, I call out those specific things because those are all indicators to watch whether I'm right or not. Remember, I'm, I don't have a high confidence interval here. So one of the things I'm watching for is how much is Europe actually ponying up for um, investment in, in cross-border infrastructure? If we start not to see that, then maybe some of these other things that I'm talking about as my base case are not right. But that, that's what I would expect to see. I would expect to see, you know, sort of limited Ukrainian ability to grow things without fertilizer, uh, lack of Russian commodities in global markets available, which could mean, you know, either less supply, so prices go up. It could also mean that there's copious supplies you pointed out for countries that are willing to import. Maybe that has um, impacts on the market in general. And then what's happening 
with Europe and is Europe pushing through some of those reforms that they need? Those are all ways to watch whether the base case is emerging or whether we're going off track. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Uh, what's going on in China? Uh, you know, we, we go from uncertainty to uncertainty. So um, China is waved the white flag on COVID-19. They lasted longer than anybody else in trying to, um, in trying to prevent COVID-19 from spreading in the country, but it's spreading. Um, so that's the first thing. China's going through, you know, things that other con- most countries in the world already went through already. Um, and then on top of that, like, you know, Chinese real estate prices are still going down kind of month on month. Um, it's the biggest thing I think that nobody's talking about in the world right now, because if China can't get those real estate prices turned around, I mean, so many Chinese people have their investments um, in real estate. Uh, that, that, that's the thing that holds value in China. You don't want to play the, the, the Shanghai stock market or any of these other things. Um, so it's those twin forces. Um, I, again, I've always been a little more optimistic about China, I think, than most of the geopolitical doom and gloom folks out there. The thing that scares me here is that, you know, China does not have a particularly good healthcare system. They have not demonstrated their ability to um, manufacture a vaccine or a COVID treatment that is particularly effective. Um, And it's a society that, you know, admires its elders and has had a one-child policy or had a one-child policy for multiple decades. So you've got a population of, you know, mostly only children who revere their parents and things like that. And if you have a hospital system and a healthcare system that's being completely overrun by a virus that disproportionately kills old people, that sounds to me like a real threat to the the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. So um, it's hard for me. I I have a lot of uncertainty about China. I have uncertainty about their ability to turn the real estate crisis around. And I have doubts about their healthcare system's ability to metabolize kind of these, the the surge in COVID cases that we're seeing. And that's why like these next three to four months, like those are the two things I'm watching for. And I'm not really willing to say which way they're going to go one way or another. I'm just willing to say that like, those are the issues at play, and those are the things that you should be watching one way or another. Yeah, so, so uh, Chinese stocks uh, up until recently were in a brutal two-year bear market that they recently have exploded higher over the past, let's say, three months. Uh, and as that have happened, two things. Number one, China exited its COVID zero policy. Um, so people can go out, people can fly all around the world. In fact, it's Italy, it's France who are now saying no to Chinese travelers yeah. uh, rather than China forbidding its own citizens from, from traveling to, to France or China. So that's number one, end of, of COVID uh, zero. And the second one is rumors uh, of, of stimulus, rumors of the People's Bank of China giving liquidity, social financing, um, as well as, okay, we won't, we won't be as tough on the tech companies as we said we, we would be. I know uh, President Xi of, of China 
said uh, the term is uh, people's prosperity. Basically, you can't have an economy that's just a bunch of real estate developers lending money to each other and they all get wealthy. But the people in the countryside who are you know, growing the food and doing all the work, they're not sharing in that. Uh, how committed is Xi to that vision? And yeah, are, are we going to have a, a bailout uh in China anytime soon, because if, you know, if the, if the, if the liquidity spigots are going to be turned back on, that's something that uh, people should know about. So China has been treating this like a supply side problem. And the, the, to your point, the question is whether they go to stimulate the demand side, which they haven't really been willing to do yet at the level that they did say 2008 or even 2014, 2015, when real estate prices just started to go down. Um, I'll also say that one of the reasons that I have some optimism about China is because Xi Jinping seems to be willing to change his mind and seems to be willing to let data drive some of his decisions. Um, so this is in marked contrast to Mao, who in the 1950s said he wanted, for instance, China to become agriculturally independent. Everybody was afraid of telling him that it wasn't going well. And so then China had a massive famine where millions of people died because nobody was willing to tell Mao, hey, like our, our agricultural efforts are not going so well. I don't see that that's what's happening here with Xi Jinping. He wanted zero COVID. He stuck a lot of his legitimacy on zero COVID. But when it became clear that China couldn't control the virus and that controlling the virus was creating more social ills than just letting the virus run rampant, he, t he pivoted. He said, OK, we're going to have to we're going to have to open up again, even if that's not kind of what I want to do. Um, one of the, um, China has been talking for years about how they want to build their own domestic semiconductor industry. Um, China said in the last couple of weeks, hey, what we've been doing really hasn't been working. We've been supplying money to all of these different companies trying to catch up, but the money just goes to corruption or is wasted and we can't actually do things up. So maybe we need to create incentive structures. Maybe we need a little more fiscal discipline here. Like the things that we're doing, just throwing money at the problems are not working. Another example of this, uh, China, in just the last couple of weeks, they've restarted coal imports from Australia. Uh, China made a huge example of Australia in the last couple of years. They stopped importing all sorts of Australian goods. Now, all of a sudden, they're importing things. So, and, and this gets back to that narrative that you talked about, where for the last two years, Chinese equities have been clobbered. They've been clobbered because people thought that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party was cracking down on the tech companies, and this was a terrible place to be, and there's genocide and, um, against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and you don't want to be associated with any of, of those sorts of things. And I think the, the point to make there is that that was never really 100% true, that China still wants foreign investment. It still wants to attract all of these things. And the big change that's happened, and, and it's really happened in the last, well, I shouldn't say the last month, that's really happened since the United States announced those really restrictive semiconductor restrictions back in September. Um, China's being softer. They are pushing aside these wolf warrior diplomats and demoting them in the foreign ministry. They're reaching out to countries like Australia and say, hey, we want to import your coal again. That um, They're trying to do these things that makes China less threatening and more friendly on the global markets. I think that's one of the reasons probably Chinese officials are talking to Western media about how they're not on board with everything that Vladimir Putin is doing uh, in Russia and in Ukraine. Um, so if you can get to the point where China gets through the COVID reopening and gets through the real estate crisis and you have a more docile China that realizes it kind of went for power a little bit too early and now is trying to be more diplomatic and more understanding and create some more of those, those um, rebuild some of those trade synergies. Yeah, that could be a good thing for Chinese companies. The thing, the reason people got skeptical on China, I don't think it had anything to do with COVID or anything like that. It was all about, oh, China's, you know, cracking down and China's not going to allow for profit. And you know, like, I, th I think that's changing a little bit. 
What about the type of massive fiscal stimulus that China enacted in 2009 and maybe 2016, where there's, you know, the government prints a ton of money, central bank prints a ton of money, um, the the state-owned banks lend to solvent responsible firms as well as insolvent irresponsible firms, and everyone gets a, a b- bunch of money, uh, and that not only lifts the Chinese boat and the Chinese econ- uh, ec- economy grows quickly, but it could even, you know, might even lift uh, the global economy. What are the odds of that? Well, not might even. Like, the global economy is based on artificial Chinese demand for all these commodities. We forget that. People who want to come up here and browbeat China need to remember that the global economy since 2008 in some ways was underpinned by that credit bazooka that you're talking about. Um, I don't think China wants to do that. I think they understand that, you know, they can kick the can down the road only so far, but if they keep on deploying credit at that sort of level, they're never actually going to fix anything. Um, So I do think that the Chinese government has come to the realization that it can't just do nothing. Like she's already been sort of, um, you know, you were very right about um, Xi Jinping's harsh language about the real estate developers. Uh, he's already softened a little bit. They're already now talking about bailing out some of the real estate developers. I think they realize that there's systemic risk here, that they can't just, um, you know, snap their fingers and make decisions in Beijing and everybody's going to march to the beat of that drum. So I, I don't think you're going to see 2008 level kind of credit bazooka stimulus, but I also don't think you're going to see... Um, the same kind of, um, like I said, the emphasis on the supply side, emphasize on the ideological aspects that Xi Jinping has been pushing. I think that China's looking for the right set of levers to try and stimulate demand, to try and do the things you're talking about in an efficient way without having to throw all these trillions of dollars at the problem. I don't envy them. It's a really difficult position to be in. And if you read people like Michael Pettis and some of these other experts in the Chinese economy, you know, they say it's probably impossible that really China just has to continue on this treadmill to hell forever. But but that's kind of what's at stake. And I think it would be wrong to expect 2008 level stimulus from China. I would expect some stimulus, but not not at the level after the great financial crisis. Mm. And so the, those three red lines the Chinese government enacted uh, uh, years ago that uh, for real estate developers, their liabilities shouldn't be more than 70% of assets, net debt shouldn't exceed equity, and that you have to have as, as much cash uh, so you can finance your short-term borrowings. To what degree were those three lines responsible for the absolute shellacking that the Chinese real estate sector has has uh, received? And then also, yeah, to what degree of, are they um, being rolled back? I mean, do you, how how long do you expect the Chinese property bubble to 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 be bursting? I mean, I talked to some people who says you know it's not going to bounce for ten years. I take it you're a little bit more sanguine than that. Um, well, the. So the real estate developers didn't listen to the restrictions in 2018. They kept on like business as usual. And for the first, I don't know, what was it? Six to eight months of the real estate problem, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government stuck to its guns. It said, if you if you went against the government here, we're not going to bail you out and you're going to default on your debt. And we saw this in sort of global financial markets and things like that. Uh, China's beginning to change its tune there. And it's beginning to change its tune because, like I said, like in the United States, like most, uh, well, not most people, but a majority of assets that you save for your retirement is, is in the stock market. In Japan, I think it's fixed income is, is the thing that most people invest in. In China, it's real estate. It's not abnormal for a middle-class Chinese family to own three and four properties in different condos. And all these property developers, you know, accept payment up front to go and build the next one before they've actually even built the, that one. So there's a whole system here of Chinese savings and how Chinese people save their money that gets threatened if you can't actually make sure that real estate prices are stabilized or even going up a little bit. So I think China's realized that. 
they are relaxing some of the three red lines. They're, they're going to go help some of these property developers right now because they understand that if they really do bring them all to their knees, like they have a bigger sort of systemic problem on their hands. Um, whether they can kind of stimulate demand again, whether they can get a bounce in the real estate market. Man, I mean, I, I wish I had a crystal ball and knew exactly the answer to that question because I'd sort of bet the ranch on that whole thing. So all I can tell you is that like, watch the kinds of um, stimulus that they're rolling out. If they're starting to stimulate supply, uh, maybe that's, you know, maybe you get a sign that things are going well. Um, the last thing I'll just say there, and this is something that also got swept under the rug with all the focus on Taiwan and semiconductor restrictions and this, that, or the other thing. Uh, one of the reasons Chinese people like real estate is because you don't really have to pay real estate taxes in China. And that's something that the Chinese government was saying last year, they wanted to start rolling out a real estate tax and they had to take that off the burner when the real estate crisis really kind of emerged. Um, so China's going to start trying to do that probably soon too. I imagine they'll pick a couple pilot cities first rather than trying to roll it out on a broader perspective. Um, but that's another thing that I think could be driving lack of confidence or lack of faith um, in, in the Chinese market. This, ulti you know, this also ultimately comes down to the kind of soft amorphous stuff that um, makes analysts uncomfortable because it comes down to culture. Like what you really need is Chinese people to not feel like a condo in some high rise is a safe investment, but you want them to go buy stakes in Chinese companies, or you want them to become entrepreneurs, or you want them to put their capital to use in productive ways in the economy. And culturally, that's just not where China has been forever. So you've got this Chinese Communist Party that's trying to cultivate that in a system that nobody has any confidence that that's, that that's how the system is going to work in any sort of way. So I guess I don't sound very sanguine, do I? There's a lot of risk there. Trust me, Jacob, I know people who are a lot more skeptical, a lot, you know, more bearish in China than you are. You're, you're, you're middle of the road. Um, I guess, well, I, I have a healthy respect for, you know, the, the other thing about China is, I mean, just, just look at some of these massive infrastructure projects that they do, for instance. Like if, if, there's, a, if there's a city of 10 million people and they want to build a dam or something on a river and that city is going to be flooded, they move the 10 million people. Like that's like what China does. So like if... Like going back, like go read like newspapers from the 1950s and even further back. You'll find China skeptics out there saying, oh, there's no way that China can do any of the things that it's doing. They've been doing it for almost a century now, like defying kind of all the odds. So I, you're not going to make money, I think, or at least I, I don't think you're going to make money betting against the Chinese in any kind of short-term horizon. The, uh, the, the last although part, people have made a lot of money over the past two years betting against China. But overall, you're right. Yeah. As, yeah, as a tactical bet, great. But like, you know, the folks that are out here that are, you know, heralding like Chinese state collapse in the next five to 10 years, which is a real view I hear from serious, smart people. Like, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't see what they're seeing. And I wouldn't bet against China in, in that sort of way. Tactically, oh, there's all sorts of tactical bets I would make against like different components of the Chinese market, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't bet, I wouldn't bet that the Chinese Communist Party, for instance, is going to go belly up in the next five years. If anything, like if you look at the grand swath of Chinese history, and we've got thousands of years of that history, um, my friend John Minnick, who's a PhD student at MIT in China relations, he, he sort of describes it as inhaling and exhaling. Like China goes through periods of intense political centralization, and then it fractures and you get warlords, and then it comes back together. It's sort of this process throughout Chinese history. Um, if you thought that China was going to collapse, you would think that you'd be seeing um, that kind of warlordism, that disintegration of political power of different provinces defying the central government. That's not what you're seeing. Like Xi Jinping basically just made himself emperor. The Chinese Communist Party is stronger than ever. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there couldn't be some kind of thing where the Chinese Communist Party unravels. This COVID reopening is the type of tail risk that I would worry about. But in general, I see, 
a Chinese Communist Party that is only getting stronger. And periods of centralization in Chinese history usually mean China does great things on the world stage. Great, I mean, you know, in magnitude, not that they're necessarily great. But before moving on to Taiwan, just really quickly, how does the reopening in China affect global supply chains as well as inflation? In other words, if uh, shipping from uh, Shanghai to the Pacific coast cost 10 times more than normal, 20 times more than normal in 2021, in part because of COVID zero, is that problem now essentially no longer with us? I don't know. For, for this, I would tell people to look at what happened with Vietnam in summer 2021, because Vietnam is the only other country out there that tried like China to keep a wrap on COVID-19. And I forget which variant it was that finally brought the Vietnamese government to its knees on that and they had to reopen. And for three or four months, all of the supply chains that were related to things that Vietnam produces were totally screwed. So things like apparel and furniture and shoes and things like that. If, if you go back to that period in time, there were three or four months where there are even some tech companies that have moved from China into Vietnam um, for manufacture of you know some aspects of the kit and stuff like that. Like, um, like it was really bad for three or four months and then it normalized. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw sort of a similar thing. The, the difference is though that like the Chinese government like I said, they know they're in the throes of an economic crisis. So they are going to prioritize keeping trade going as much as possible to the extent that they can. So I'm not so I'm not so worried about the supply chain disruption there. If anything, China's reopening should help inflation because whether you like China or not, like China's still the factory of the world. And if China starts supplying things and producing things, even if it takes three or four months for them to get back to where they were before the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I would think that at least on the supply side, that should help inflation come down a little bit. Um, but, you know, th th that might be too rosy of an interpretation as well. Mm -hmm. um, the last time we spoke, Jacob, I think it was shortly after uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi flew to Taiwan, which was a historic uh, event. What has happened between China and Taiwan since then? And how has it affected the, uh, uh, you know, uh, troubling um, U.S.-China relationship? Was it that historic? I don't see that anything of world historical import happened. So it was the first time. It was it was um you know like uh you know f first person from Florida to win the national spelling bee. It, it was like that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, uh, look, uh, we got some strongly worded statements. We got some disruptions to shipping around Taiwan for a couple of weeks as China did some military drills. I you know, know some companies that had real difficulties with that for a couple of weeks. And at the time, we were scared it was going to last longer. It didn't. Um, I think China learned from the, 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 the last Taiwan Strait crisis was in the mid-90s. It didn't do China any good to, to do all those things. If anything, it only encouraged sort of independence and anti-China-minded people in Taiwan itself. So I do think that China's used the opportunity to reset what is defined as a normal, um, in, uh, not intervention, but a normal sort of intrusion in Taiwan's airspace or the area around Taiwan. Like now they send, you know, 20 fighter jets or five ships instead of 10 fighter jets and two ships or something like that. Uh, but in general, I think you're seeing very clearly that China thought that they weren't going to get a whole lot by making a big deal out of this. Um, and I feel pretty vindicated by, you know, I, I think I said earlier last year, like, you know, 0% chance of China invading Taiwan. I still feel like that. Like, I don't see that China is going to go after Taiwan in that sense anytime soon. The bigger thing that's happened, of course, is this shift in semiconductors. Because it feels like every country now wants its own domestic semiconductor supply chain. And in that sense, like, I feel bad for Taiwan and I feel bad for TSMC because they they built up this position in the global economy with comparative advantage of being the world's semiconductor fab. 
And now there are governments around the world that you know want to make sure that they can make semiconductors for themselves and are only interested in Taiwan in and so far as they let TSMC build factories kind of on their on their own land. Yes, and geopolitically, countries really want to have their own uh, uh, supply chains of semiconductors, as you said, even though financially semiconductors are selling for a song and the business is not in any way in a good shape. Well, if you could figure out which of the semiconductor companies are going to be the champions for the countries in which they're in, you know, those would be great bets. I mean, that's the whole argument around a, com- a company like Intel. Like, yes, Intel's been suffering from execu- uh, you know, execution failures for years. They lost the cutting edge. They're, they never seem to be able to get out of their own way. But if Intel is the U.S. champion and with all that money in, in the CHIPS Act and support from the U.S. government, if they become sort of the main fab for U.S. companies and things like that oh, could be a great thing for Intel. It's also maybe it's a low margin business. Maybe that's not the one you want to be in. Maybe it really is the design and stuff like that, that uh, or software that is really going to be the thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the sell-off in semis, I think, is more cyclical. It's yeah. an inherently cyclical business. Right, that's um, what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, but you know, geopolitically, semis is in some ways the most in, like one of the most interesting parts of the market. I'm sort of looking at it all the time and wondering where it's going to go. Right. Well, uh, Jacob, great to have you on, hear your perspective about geopolitics. People can follow you on Twitter at Jacob Schapp, and uh, they can find your work at Cognitive.Investments. Jacob, I understand you're doing a a new venture with a gentleman who's a macro research and analysis. I have an incredible amount of respect for someone I used to work with named Roger Hurst. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think the way you and I met Jack was because the guys at Lycaon sent an email and, and said that we should meet each other. So I've been writing for Lycaon for over a year now. And uh, Roger's been writing at Lycaon for over a year now. He, he's a real vision. I'm at CI. Uh, and we liked it so much. And there was enough interest that we're going to start writing a thing together once a month. And maybe uh, I don't think we're charging money for it quite yet. But the idea, I think, is eventually to make it sort of a paid thing. So um, it's, it's actually for me, it's not actually that much of a change of what I've been doing before. Uh, it's really about, um, you know, combining two things together. Uh, means the sum is greater than than the whole of the parts sort of thing. So I think, you know, I'm going to be providing geopolitical perspectives. Roger's going to be um, providing macro perspectives. In some ways, the most interesting parts for, are going to be where we disagree, I think, rather than where we agree. Um, and it's kind of fun. Like a lot of my stuff is either with companies or, you know, for our investors at CI and things like that. But this will be a more available to the masses if you don't want to sort of pony up and invest at CI or if you're not a company that can afford to sort of pay top dollar for those types of insights. There you go. People should check that out. Uh, Jacob, thanks again. And thanks everyone for watching. Jack, thanks so much. And I hope the next time I come on here that I have a little more certainty. I feel like all I peddled for you here was was uncertainty today. So hopefully in a couple months, we'll have more certainty about some of these other things. And we can talk about how wrong I was or, or how skittish I was. In hey, this call. true uncertainty. I'd m- much rather have that than false uncertainty. <laughs>